Welcome back, everybody, to the Only You Podcast. This is your host, Lo Jackson. Today, I'm going to be sharing a book with you called World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17. And I just want to say that I feel everybody out there has known somebody or has witnessed somebody who has died of cancer in their lifetime and know the true pain and sorrow that comes, you know, from losing somebody and that there's never really getting over it you know it's carried with you throughout your life and you just find ways to um, take the love that you had for that person and put it somewhere else even though it's never fully expressed because that person's no longer here I witnessed my grandfather who died of um, no, he died of um, skin cancer and I was only like four years old but I remember him laying on the couch and he was bald and I knew he was really sick and he didn't die too long after that but when I was 11 that was the most tragic time of my life of watching one of my childhood best friends die of some kind of weird um, cervical cancer um it was so unreal. She had been around all my life. We had swam in the river together, went fishing together. And then just one day she got so sick and I used to, it, nobody could be there after school with her. So I would come there after I got out of school and I would sit with her for a half hour every day. And sometimes I'd have to help her go to the bathroom. And I remember standing outside the door and hearing her pee and when it would hit the toilet it would just sizzle because it had radiation coming pouring out of her body that's the only thing later in life that I assumed was going on in there but it was so devastating to me and it took me a long time to get over that but I wanted to share this book with you today that I had found because I found it to be really interesting and um, this book is really about a chemical found in plants and fruits and vegetables that nobody nobody really knows about and I learned about it when I took horticulture in college and I got a degree in horticulture I learned about these uh cyanido or cyan yeah cyanidogenic glucosides and it's a type of plant sugar that has cyanide in them which um um one of the it's called amygdalin really but the man-made form of amygdalin is literal l-a-e-t-r-i-l-e and that's the man-made form of amygdalin the doctor of the future will give no medication but will interest his patients in the care of the human frame diet and in the cause and prevention of disease Thomas Edison I thought that was a powerful statement to make there and I wanted to share this book today too because it kind of coincides with one of my first podcasts I had done called Foods That Heal by Dr. Bernard Jensen <clears throat> and in that book I had read that you know he Dr. Jensen actually said in that book that in the Bible in Genesis it says eat of the fruit and the seed and it said that for a reason because when you if you don't eat the seeds of fruits because there's cyanidogenic 
So yeah, there's pretty much a migdalin and cucumber seeds, um, cherry seeds, apricot seeds, almonds. That all has vitamin B17 in them. Um, since the early 1950s, both amygdalin and the chemical deriv derivative named Latrille have been promoted as alternative cancer treatments, often under the misnomer vitamin B17. Neither amygdalin nor Latrille is a vitamin. Specific studies have found them to not only be clinically ineffective in treating cancer, but also potentially toxic or lethal when taken by mouth due to cyanide poisoning. Which, I mean, it's hard not to think. Because, I mean, this guy that wrote this book, uh, G, uh, G. Edward Griffin, actually wrote World Without Cancer. He is a, you know... Here, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about this gentleman because I feel it's always important to, you know, talk about the author of a book because it's their work, you know. So, George Edward Griffin was born November 17th, 1931. He's an American author, filmmaker, and conspiracy theorist. And that's why I wanted to say that last part because think about it. You're going to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for chemotherapy, okay? Um... But you're not going to try something that is natural in the world. You're going to believe people that are all about the dollar and the mighty dollar. You know, uh, P, uh, Pfizer posted its earnings of 2022, you know, after COVID. Record-breaking $100 billion. Come on, man. I, this ain't no conspiracy theory. This is a money game. And, and the American public is being led astray, and it's unreal that nobody wants to believe it, but Griffin's writings promoted a number of right-wing views and conspiracy theories regarding political defense and health care. In, in his book, World Without Cancer, he argued in a favor of a pseudoscientific theory that asserted cancer to be a nutritional deficiency, and that's why I included hypocrites in this uh, podcast as well, because um, our friend hypocrites... If you have you if you've never heard of him, he was a Greek physician um, during the classic period, and he is traditionally referred to as the father of medicine. And all of his beliefs too, he took religion away from medicine. He literally every doctor in America and physician they get their first teachings from Hippocrates, and that was like back in you know 370 BC. And he was the first one that realized that you had to be compassionate towards the patient. And it started with whatever that patient's diet is. And that's where Hippocrates started. And um, that's where he went on to teach the world about, you know, uh, his theory on med medicines. You know, Hippocrates actually thought, wrote, and did everything that he said. H Hippocrates is commonly portrayed as the paragon of the ancient physician and created with coining hypocrite's oath which it's still in use today which is still relevant and used today <laughs> he is also credited with greatly um advancing the systematic study of clinical medicine i find that to be truly awesome and so obviously so did uh g edward griffin who wrote world without cancer and uh he also uh g g edward griffin um, he argued in favor 
of pseudoscientific theory that asserted cancer to be a nutritional deficiency. And I do believe that true because we're all able to cure ourselves of many ailments. Not everything. I'm not saying that. But I feel that um, Edward G. Edward Griffin was really onto a lot of great things that, you know, he thought outside the box. That's why I wanted to share this book with you guys. Um, he is an HIV AIDS denialist, so, which I've heard that HIV and AIDS could be cured by uh, collodial silver. Like, and I used to know a dude out in Phoenix, Arizona, he would always give me a bottle of collodial silver every day that him and his wife made, and they drank it every day. And it's like, it's pretty interesting. It's ionizing silver and water to make some kind of silver treat that gets in your system, and it pretty much like, it's an electrified element that you drink into your body, and it literally... T once the T cell of the HIV and AIDS come into contact with the collodial silver, the collodial silver literally shocks the T cell back to conforming to your body's normal DNA structure instead of acting like it's in, you know, because I mean, cancer is just um, a deficient cell. Everybody actually has deficient cells in them, which some people would always say, oh, that's cancer. But, anyways, back, back, back to uh, E. Uh, or G. Edward Griffin's uh, biography here. Uh, he supports the 9-11 truth movement and supports the specific JFK Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory that Oswald was not the assassin. That's kind of interesting. Which, if anybody's ever done any research about the assassinations of Lincoln and Kennedy, you'll know that Lincoln actually created the greenback, which was a dollar that totally took the Rothschilds out of supporting the war because the Rothschilds were actually pumping money in the South and the North trying to get America just to burn down. And in reality, Abraham Lincoln caught on to it and he just, he created the greenback. And then I think like a month later he was shot to death. And then JFK created the silver note, dodging the federal reserve and all the banks and the centralized bank or the world bank. And he was also assassinated. Um, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist. It's hard not to be when we live in times that we're living in. It's a, it's a really uh, hard world out there, honestly, it, and it's um, unfortunate that you know big pharma has caused a lot of our heartaches. You know, the there are hidden cancer cures out there, and I do believe that they're being hidden from us. And I do believe that uh, even I think the founding father of the pharmaceutical world, which is uh, William Proctor Jr., he he was actually born on May third, eighteen seventy was an American pharmacist. He graduated from the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy in 1837. You know, uh, Procter & Gram Gamble's still around today, and they're one of the biggest people. And if you think that these people ain't buying politicians and getting their wiggling their way up in there in the Washington, <laughs> you're definitely living in a, a time of uh, fairy tales and uh, Aladdin and the magic lamp and all that stuff. Chapter 1, The Watergate Syndrome. Examples of dishonesty and corruption in the field of drug research. A close look at the first major study which declared literal vitamin B17 of no value. Proof that the study was fraudulent. The FDA's ruling against the use of literal because it had not been tested and the refusal then to allow anyone except its opponents to test it. And if that doesn't make sense because that's what they're doing now with other drugs too. Like, oh, you can't test that because... 
you know, we have a monopoly on it, and we're trying to make record-breaking sales, and that's what all this stuff is ever about anymore. This year, 550,000 Americans will die from cancer. One out of three of us will develop cancer in our lifetime. That is 88 million people in the United States alone. The purpose of this study is to show that this great human tragedy can be stopped now entirely on the basis of existing scientific knowledge. We will explore the theory that cancer like scurvy and pellagra is a deficiency. And if you don't know what pellagra, pellagra is, it's caused by cat bites. It is a deficient disease aggravated by the lack of an essential food compound in modern man's diet and that its ultimate control is to be found simply in restoring this substance to our daily intake. What you are about to read does not carry the approval of the organized med of organized medicine. The Food and Drug Administration, the American Cancer Society, and the Am American Medical Association have labeled it fraud and quackery. And that's what they do too because people are pumping money into them or they're a part of a money system to where they would side to keep benefiting with profits from whoever is feeding them money. And I know that's true because it happens every day. And it's not just with drugs. It's also with your food and with your electronics and everything else. Then people are lobbying. Then people are buying and donating. And, you know, that influences our people, you know. And that's what our founding fathers wanted us to be aware of when this happens you have to go back to the Constitution and start figuring out ways to defeat them silently and then, you know, silently and civilly with their own crap. In fact, the FDA and other agencies of government have used every means of their disposal to prevent the story from being told. They have arrested citizens for holding public meetings to tell others of their convictions on this subject. They have confiscated films and books they even have persecuted doctors or excuse me prosecuted doctors who apply these theories in an effort to save the lives of their own patients the attitude of big brother expressed bluntly in 1971 by great leak excuse me by grant leak chief of the fraud section of california's food and drug bureau is this we're going to protect them even if some of them don't want to be protected. Early in 1974, the California Medical Board brought formal charges against Stuart M. Jones, M.D., for using Letrol in the treatment of cancer patients. It was learned later, however, that Dr. Julius Levine, one of the members of the board himself, had been using Letrol in the treatment of his own cancer. When Dr. Jones' case came up for review, the political pressures were so great that Dr. Levine felt compelled to resign from his post rather than out openly in support of Dr. Jones and his patients. This is happening in a land which boasts of freedom and whose symbols is the Statue of Liberty. For the first time in our history, people are being forced to flee from our shores as medical it, immigrants seeking freedom of choice and sovereignty over their own bodies, literal has been available in Australia, Brazil, Belgium, Costa Rica, England, Germany, Greece, 
India, Italy, Israel, Japan, Lebanon, Mexico, Peru, the Philippines, Spain, Switzerland, Russia, Venezuela, and Vietnam. But it is not allowed in the land of the free. With billions of dollars spent each year in research, with additional billions taken in from the cancer-related sale of drugs, and with vote-hungry politicians promising ever-increasing government programs, today there are more people making a living from cancer than are dying from it. If the riddle were to be solved by a simple vitamin, this gigantic commercial and political industry could be wiped out overnight. The result is the science of cancer therapy is not nearly as complicated as the politics of cancer therapy. And that's because all the systems that they are creating. Because these people that are, you know, they go to school, they become lawyers for pharmaceutical companies or some little drug company that has a niche in the market. Well, then all of a sudden they learn all their secrets and they're like, whoa, I'm going to the government and I'm passing laws because I'm going to push my spectacles and my beliefs upon the American people and see where I go and see how if I stay in the history books or you know what I mean and I and I do feel like that if there was any good that came from the Watergate scandals of the 70s it was the public awakening to the reality that government officials sometimes do not tell the truth oh we have learned that then and then time and time again on and on now have we not people and when caught and not even in this country but all other countries too and when caught in such mediocrities, they invariably claim that they lied only to protect national security, public health, or some other equally noble objective. This Watergate syndrome is not new. Several years ago, an FDA agent who had testified in court against the Kansas City businessman admitted under cross-examination that he had lied under oath 28 times. When asked if he regarded what he had done, he replied, No, I don't have any regrets. I wouldn't hesitate to lie to tell a lie if it would help the American consumer. Hmm, is that not interesting? The FDA is not squeamish over its tactics to help the American consumer. When a businessman falls into disfavor with the bureaucracy, there are no holds bar and the law is used not as a reason for attack, but a, re a weapon of attack. In other words, the FDA does not take action because the law says it should. It does so because it wants to, and then searches through the law for an excuse. The celebrated case of U.S. versus Dextra Fortified Sugar. And like I've said in other, my other podcasts, remember, you know, when they came out with all these saccharin and aspartame, in the 70s, they took off in the 80s. Then at the end of the 80s, everybody was falling dead of cancer. and Diet Pepsi was having huge recalls. Well, here, here's the thing. For example, the FDA had ruled that it was misbranding to fortify sugar with vitamins and minerals and still call it sugar. But the court ruled otherwise, pointing out the basic flaw in the government's case is that it is seeking under the guise of misbranding charges to prohibit the sale of a food in the marketplace simply because it is not a sympathy it is not in sympathy with its use usually there is much more going on in these cases than overzealousness on the part of a few few bureaucrats 
excuse me, bureaucrats, wow, pretending to protect the public is the favorite cover for hidden agendas. Legislation claiming to protect the consumer usually is written by representatives of very industries from which the consumer supposedly is to be protected. Politicians who are grateful for the financial support of those industries are eager to put their names on the legislation and push it for enactment. Once it becomes law, it serves merely to protect the sponsoring industry against competition. The consumer is the victim, not the beneficiary. And let me read that to you one more time. Once it becomes law, it serves merely to protect the sponsoring industries against competition. The consumer is the victim, not the beneficiary. Let that sink in. This is just as true in the field of medicine as in any other. In medicine, however, there is an added necessity to pretend that everything is being done scientifically. Therefore, in addition to recruiting the aid of politicians, scientists also must be enlisted a feat that is easily accomplished by the judicious allocation of funding for research. Yeah, where's your money going to? Oh, it's going right over here into my pocket. Oh, I'll do whatever you need me to do. The reality was revealed by former FDA Commissioner James L. Goddard. In 1966, speech before the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association expressing concern over dishonesty and the testing for new drugs, he said. I mean, think about COVID, everybody. How fast did that come out? Now you're seeing huge, huge people. I mean, they're against it. It's going to be banned. I mean, it's causing so many different types of ailments in people. It's, it's unreal. You better do your research. Look it up. I'm looking every day. And believe me, the government's not going to tell you everything you need to know. Find places where you can hear what other countries are saying and what other, other people are saying. All right, back to World Without Cancer. I have been shocked, and this is James L. Goddard in 1966, um, and he's talking before the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association. I have been shocked at the materials that come in. In addition to the problem of quality, there is the problem of dishonesty and the investigational new drug usage. I will admit there are gray areas in the investigation of new drug situation, but the Conscious withholding of unfavorable animal clinical data is not a gray matter. The deliberate choice of clinical investigators known to be more concerned about industry friendships than in developing good data is not a gray matter at all. Goddard's processor at the FDA was Dr. Herbert Lay. And a lot of you remember him because he did do a lot of great in America. In 1969, he testified before a Senate committee and described several cases of blatant dishonesty in drug testing. One case involved an assistant professor of medicine who had test tested 24 drugs for nine different drug companies. Dr. Lay said, Patients 
who died while on clinical trials were not reported to the sponsor. I find this to be very ironic in the times now and the things that we know that are going on with all these vaccinations. Listen closely, folks. Dead people were listed as subjects of testing. People reported as subjects of testing were not in the hospital at the time of tests. Patient consent forms bore dates indicating they were signed after the subject died. Now, is that unreal? And another thing we have an issue with in this country is voter fraud. So think about all the, you know, state entities, healthcare people that were calling you about your COVID symptoms and your problems. Well, they were taking notes and data on you. So when the elections come up, all the people that died, you better believe that they're probably going to try to use those people as voters as well. That's another conspiracy theory of mine, but I think it's true. Maybe I'm nuts. Another case involved a commercial drug testing firm that have worked on 82 drugs from 28 companies. Dr. Lay continued, patients who died, left the hospital, or dropped out of the study were replaced by other patients in the tests without notification in the records. Hmm, that's kind of funny. 41 patients reported as participating in the studies were dead or not in the hospital during the studies. <laughs> Record keeping, supervision, and observations of patients in general were grossly inadequate. Between 1977 and 1980, it was discovered that 62 doctors had submitted clinical data to the FDA, which was manipulated or completely falsified. In one study conducted by the FDA itself, it was discovered that one in every five doctors investigated doctors researching the effects of new drugs had invented the data they reported and pocketed the fees. So, you know, with all these data companies out there doing data, you know, they're worried about that little bit of coin they're getting out of those situations. I mean, it ain't about the data. It's about the fees they're getting. Come on. I mean, we know money talks and bullshit walks. And, I mean, we've been seeing this go on since 1971. It's like, come on. Between 1977 and 1980, it was discovered that 62 doctors had submitted clinical data to the FDA, which was manipulated or completely falsified. In one study conducted by the FDA itself, it was discovered that one in every five doctors investigated doctors researching the effects of new drugs had invented the data they reported and pocketed the fees. Let that sink in. All the, yeah, all the above right there. <laughs> These are not unusual or isolated cases. John Brathwaite, a criminologist at the Austrian, excuse me, at the Australian Institute of Criminology and also former commissioner of trade practices in Australia, states the problem is that most fraud in clinical trials is unlikely to even be detected. Most cases which do come to public attention only do so because of extraordinary carelessness carelessness by the criminal physician. According to Dr. Judith Jones, former director of the Division of Drug Experience at the FDA, if a research facility obtains research that 
uh, does not demonstrate the safety or effectiveness of a, of a drug, it is not uncommon for the drug company to bury the report and continue testing elsewhere until they find a facility that gives them the results they want or unfavorable reports are rarely published and clini uh, clinicians are pressured into keeping quiet about them. I mean, that's why you see, you know, those drugs on TV and the person, the legal talking person's talking so fast. It may cause strokes, it may cause blood clots, it may cause this, it may cause that. You know, because they don't want you to think about your, you know, side effects of taking their garbage. They just want you to be hooked on it. And I'm sure there's ways in the pharmaceutical world that they're incorporating other um, things that make you addicted to things because that's what all these companies are about. Even the food people, you know, as much as the drug people, they're all about keeping you hooked on this stuff they got out there. The, the incentives for clinical investigators to fabricate data is enormous. American drug companies pay as much as 1000 per patient which enables some doctors to collect over $1 million per year from drug research. All the easier it, the treatment are, oh, excuse me, all the easier it is for the treatments to be imaginary. Even if the tests are not fabricated, there is still the effect of subconscious bias. These doctors know that if they don't produce the results the drug companies are seeking, the likelihood of their receiving future work is greatly diminished and they don't want that so they do whatever they have to do to make this drug acceptable and pass any kind of laws or codes that need it to pass and then they put their name on it and it goes back to you know the pharmaceutical company who's going to be making it then they put their stamp on it and then it's authenticated so it gets passed on to the fda and then they go over and they're like oh oh this is perfect yeah here you go go ahead take this poison it'll help you out Anyways, back to World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17. I hope you guys are enjoying this. I found this to be very interesting. I haven't done a really interesting one in quite a while. I found some good reads, but I did a few polls, and some of you guys didn't enjoy what I was sharing, so I decided to go back to a different topic that I haven't done in a while because I had had a lot of good reviews about this stuff. So I hope you're enjoying it. Thank you. Um, where was I? As one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. As one would predict from the foregoing discussion of how contract labs can be used by sponsors to abrogate responsibility for quality research, contract labs were found to have a worse record of good laboratory practices violations than sponsored labs. The worst record of all, however, was with university, university laboratories. One must be extremely cautious about this finding since there were only five university laboratories in the study. Nevertheless, it must undermine any automatic assumption that university researchers, with, with their supposed detachment from the profit motive, are unlikely to cut uh, comers on research standards. The trial of corruption leads all the way to the FDA itself. A study conducted by USA Today revealed that more than half of the experts hired to advise the government on the safety and effectiveness of medicine have financial relationships with the pharmaceutical companies 
that are affected by their advice. The report stated, These experts are hired to advise Food and Drug Administration on which medications should be approved for sale, what the warning labels should say, and how studies of drugs should be designed. And I want to share with you right there, um, you know, the news media and the world loves to tell stories of people, people who commit crimes. They never love to tell the good about them people. But I want to share something with you that not a lot of people know about a notorious gangster from Chicago named Al Capone. You know, Al Capone was known for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre where he, you know, beat a bunch of people to death with a baseball bat in front of a whole crowd or something like that. He was a mob boss. He set a standard in that city, and he had to keep it, even though he was a criminal. Check this out. Not a lot of people know this, but Al Capone started lobbying for born-on-dates to be on milk bottles because his niece became sick from unpasteurized milk, so he went to the Illinois Senate committee and started lobbying. He was one of the first people in history to lobby for born on dates on drugs, on food, and that was the gangster Al Capone. And history people don't want you to know that because people thrive on um, hate and evil and ignorance. And it's stupid. You know, tell the good about people. That's awesome, man. His, his niece got sick. He manned up and he went to the state Senate committee and, you know, actually got a ball rolling that is still rolling today. And I know because I have to check the code date on every bottle that comes off my machine at work every night. So, thanks, Al. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to Only You Podcast. This is World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17 by G. Uh, Edward Griffin. And I do want to say that uh, there are a lot of things that go on in our government that we have no idea about. You know, people get, you know, snubbed out all the time over things that they literally had no idea about, you know, or, you know what I mean? Like, they get murdered for things that were, like, they they literally had nothing to do with it. And I also wanted to uh, share with you a little story about a guy, uh, well, actually, it was a lawyer, and they made a movie about this gentleman, and his name was actually Michael David Weiss. Um, and I don't know if any of you guys have heard of the movie. It's called Puncture. But Michael David Weiss was a lawyer that, um, a gentleman in the United States, his niece had gotten... She was an RN at a hospital in a metropolitan area, and her uncle created the safety point needle, but his niece had an addict that came in with HIV. She was trying to give him Narcan, I believe, because he was ODing. He started seizing. The needle came out of his arm and punctured her, and she was then HIV positive, which Michael David Weiss, he was, oh, he was a great lawyer. But he actually, um, he was born on December 7th, 1967, and he actually died on October 2nd, 1999. And this is another one of my conspiracy theories, folks. And I'm sharing this with you because I'm reading to you a book that's um, pretty much exposing the FDA and all these companies and what they're doing to us. But Michael David Weiss was a warrior in the face of adversity. He began a class action lawsuit against hospital syringe distributors in America in hopes 
of protecting nurses from accidental syringe sticks. Um, I do want to say that Weiss died at the age of 32, um, and it was sad because uh, the official cause of his death was drug overdose, but the authorities did not pursue further investigation. And it's like, you know, what? It's crazy that he and, he and he died, I think it was like three days before they passed down a $100 million, $183 million win. Um, the family moved to Bel Air, Texas in the greater Houston metropolitan area when, uh, oh, sorry, this was uh, Michael David Weiss's early years. Um, Weiss graduated from Bel Air High School in 1985. Weiss studied philosophy for two years at Harvard University, and uh, he attended the University of Texas School of Law. I, uh, I want to tell you about the case that he was involved in called the Safety Syringe Case. In 1998, Michael David Weiss and Paul Danzier, uh, which was a childhood friend of uh, his... Uh, Thomas J. Shaw, who had trouble selling an auto-retractable single-use syringe, the safety syringe, became um, Premier Incorporated and Novation, two largest healthcare group purchasing organizations, which that is GPOs, that's um, in the United States, refused to adopt his new, more expensive, safer syringe because it cost more money. And all the United States government people had money in the GO GPOs. The, uh, including Obama. The inventor turned his hope toward Mike Weiss and Paul Danzinger with those issues. Together, Weiss and Danzinger brought a lawsuit against GPOs, but the case never went to trial. In 2002, lawyer Mark Lanier helped Shaw settle with two GPOs in 2004, studying, sorry, I, I misquoted, for... Uh, equivalent of $143 million in 2021, which was $100 million back then. I, I thought it was $183 million. I was wrong, but it was $143 million. Excuse my, my uh, um, misspeaking. The larger manufacturer of medical syringes. Okay. Following the civil case, a criminal investigation had been initiated by the United States Attorney's Office in Dallas against the GPOs. However, both U.S. Attorney attorneys who prepared and delivered the subpoenas on investigation of Novation died under mysterious circumstances on July 20th, 2004. Let Assistant U.S. Attorney Thelma Quince Colbert was found drowned in her pool at the age of 55 before she had finished preparing the subpoenas. On September 13, 2004, just 55 days later, Criminal Chief of Dallas U.S. Attorney's Office Sharon K. Ross, who signed the subpoenas, followed, following Colbert's death, died suddenly because of an inflammation of the spinal cord and roots of the spinal nerves, scientifically called uh, meningeal myotel. That's something big. Afterwards, the Office of the United States Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez fired or forced to resign three other Dallas assistant U.S. attorneys who happened to be working on that case. A criminal investigation of fraud by GPOs was picked up by the United States Attorney's Office in Kansas City under U.S. Attorney Todd Graves, but a number of staff attorneys were also fired or forced to resign, including Graves himself, by 2006, and the investigation was called off. A later investigation by the Justice Department determined that the dismissals were politically related, though for a list of reasons 
that did not include the medical fraud investigation, nor did it include the investigation of Michael David Weiss. And if you get a chance, you guys, get out there and uh, rent that movie called Puncture. You'll learn a lot. It's a, it's a wild situation. I had, I had my hats off to Michael David Weiss. And back to World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B12. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that uh, you're finding this podcast to be one of my more interesting ones. I did take the time to uh, really find a good one. The incentive for clinical investigators to fabricate data. I read that to you. Uh, it's like $100 million per year. That's crazy, right? Um, the trials of corruption leads to all the way to the FDA. Um, I read that to you. These experts are hired to advise the Food and Drug Administration on which medicines should be approved for sale, what the warning labels should say, and how studies of drugs should be uh, designated or designed. These experts are supposed to be independent, but the USA Today found that 54% of the time they have a direct financial interest in the drug or topic they are asked to evaluate. These conflicts include helping a pharmaceutical company develop a medicine, then serving on an FDA advisory committee that judges the drug. See, and that's a conflict of interest right there. We can't be doing that. We got to start getting laws in there that stop these people from bouncing back and forth because I know for a fact that um, there's people that work for Monsanto and company, which is the biggest seed company in the world. They literally, you know, higher-ups in that corporation go back and work for the agricultural companies of the United States and the federal government, you know, the federal agricultural places. And and they go back and work for, you know, food and drug companies from Monsanto. Thank you guys for listening. Um, the conflicts of typical include stock ownership, consulting fees, or research giants. Let's bring this into focus on the issue of cancer. Science can be used not only to push drugs into the market that do not work, but also to hold back remedies that do, because these remedies represent potential competition to the pharmaceutical industry, which controls the drug approving process. The controversy that once surrounded Dr. Andrew Ivey's anti-cancer drug known as Krebozine, it's K-R-E-B-I-O-Z-E-N, Krebozine, Krebiozine, is an example of this phenomenon. Prior to crossing swords with the FDA in the early 1960s, Dr. Ivey had been widely acknowledged as one of the nation's foremost medical specialists. As head of the University of Illinois Clinical Science Department, he had prepared 350 candidates for the graduate degrees of Doctor of Philosophy and Master of Science. He was an American representative at the Nuremberg Trials after World War II in Germany. The American Medical Association had awarded him bronze, silver, and gold medals in recognition of his outstanding work in the field of medicine. He had written over a thousand articles published in scientific and medical journals. In fact, the FDA itself often had called upon him as an expert to offer medical testimony in court, but when he began to use an unorthodox approach to cancer therapy overnight, he was branded a fucking quack.
During the course of Ivy's trial, a letter was read and to the court record written by a doctor from Indianapolis. The doctor stated in his letter that he was treating a patient who had multiple tumors and that a biopsy of the tissue had shown these tumors to be cancerous. The doctor said that he had obtained crobiozine from Dr. Ivy's laboratories and had administered it, but that it had done absolutely no good. When called to the witness stand, however, the doctor's answers were vague and evasive. Under the pressure of cross-examination, he finally broke down and admitted that he never had treated such a patient, never had ordered the biopsy in question, and never had used crabiozine even once. The whole story had been a lie. Why did he give false testimony? He replied that one of the FDA agents had written the letter and asked him to sign it. He did so because he wanted to help the agency put the end to quackery. In September of 1963, the FDA released a report to the effect of cryo, cry, excuse me, crabiozine was for all practical purpose the same as creatine, a common substance that was found in every hamburger. To prove this point, they produced a photographic overlay supposedly showing the spectrograms of cryobezine, the creatine superimposed over each other. These were published in Life magazine and other segments of the mass communication media as unimpeachable proof that crabiozine was useless. And remember what Malcolm X said, the news can make the innocent guilty and the guilty innocent it is the most powerful entity in the world and that's why they gave it to um you know a news platform to put that out there in their magazines to you know life magazine you know it's i'm sure there's people at life magazine that go back and forth and work for the government and they go back to life magazine when they're done doing their you know their four years or whatever when senator paul douglas saw the spectrogram he was suspicious. He said, he, excuse me, so he asked Dr. Scott Anderson, one of the nation's foremost authorities on spectrograms, to make his own study. Using standard techniques of analysis, Dr. Anderson identified 29 differences between the two substances. There were 16 chemical and color differences. The version released to the press by the FDA had been carefully moved off-center until there was a maximum, maximum appearance of similarity, but when restored to the true axis, the two were as different as night and day. The tactics used against Littrell are even more dishonest than those against cryo... That's a hard word, you guys. Cryobiozine. Perhaps the most damaging of... Them has been pseudoscientific reports released in 1953 by the Cancer Commission of California Medical Association published in the April issue of California Medicine. The report presented an impressive collection of charts and technical data indicating that exhaustive research had been carried out into every aspect of Latrill. Its molecular composition had been analyzed, 
its chemical action studied, its effect on tumor-bearing rats observed, and its effectiveness on human cancer patients determined. The stern conclusion of all this supposedly objective research was stated. No satisfactory evidence has been produced to indicate any significant cytotoxic effect of latril on the cancer cell. The conclusion of this California report are sufficient for most physicians and researchers. Not one in 10,000 has ever even seen latril, much less used it. Yet, they all know the latril does not work because the California branch of AMA, Cancer Commission, said so. And they have no reason to question the reliability of those who did the work. And that's another reason why you got to do your own research and find out, you know, that these people are fluffing you and lying to you. And report, reporter Tom Valentine interviewed many leading cancer specialists to determine that they thought what they thought about Latrill. Here he describes a typical reaction. Dr. Edwin Morand of Roswell Memorial Hospital in Buffalo, New York said, We've looked into and found it has no value. When asked if the uh, renowned little hospital, which deals with cancer actually tested latrill dr moran said no we did not feel it was necessary after others of good reputation had tested it and found it to be of no effectiveness in the treatment of cancer he referred as all authorities do to the california report others have run up against the same stone wall Prof professional researcher david martin reported his experience the cancer expert in question as i had anticipated told me that latrill was sugar pills he had told me that he had used latrill experimentally on x number of patients and found it completely ineffective i might have been impressed but when i asked him whether he had ever used it on himself he said that he had not when i asked him whether he had ever traveled abroad to study the experience with latrill therapy in germany italy mexico and the philippines or other countries, he replied that he had not. And when I asked him if he had ever made a first-hand study of the pros and cons of the subject, again, he conceded that he had not. He was simply repeating what he had heard from others who, in turn, were probably repeating what they had heard from others going all the way back to the um, in inadequate report of 1953 that the California Cancer Commission put out. It is important, therefore, to know something of the na nature of the California report and the scientific integrity of those who drafted it. Although the report, as published in California Medicine, was unsigned, it was written by Dr. Ian uh, McDonald, chairman and commission of Dr. Henry Garland, security secretary. Dr. McDonald was a prominent cancer surgeon, and Dr. Garland was an internationally famous radiologist. Both were listed in the Who's Who, which must be a magazine or list of doctors. There were seven other prominent physicians on the commission, including four more surgeons, other radiologists and pathologists, but they played no major part in the preparation of the report. Not one of these men, not even McDonald or Garland, had ever used literal and first-hand experiments of their own. All they had done was make evaluations and uh, summaries of the written records of others. Before examination, 
excuse me, before examining those evaluations and summaries, let us first recall that McDonald and Garland were the two physicians who had nationally had had national headlines claiming that they there was no connection between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. I would not believe these clowns. And in, in addition, before the public health section to Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on July 9, 1964, Dr. Garland had said, A current widely held hypothesis is that cigarette smoking is, is casually related to a vast number of different diseases ranging from cancer to coronary osteosclerosis. After studying the question for several years, notably it is reported relationship to primary bronchial cancer, it is my considered opinion that the hypothesis is not proven. What she was getting a kickback from the cigarette companies. He had to have been. Come on. Thank you guys for listening to... Uh, world without cancer i think this was a great read hopefully you enjoyed this podcast please let me know um there is so much more into this book um that you could learn um i'll read a little bit more before examining those evaluations and summaries let us first recall oh yeah i read that to you i'm sorry uh in the report of the ama's committee for research on tobacco health it says to date approximately 14 million have been awarded from tobacco industry and 203 individual research projects at 90 universities and institutions. As a direct result of these grants, 450 reports have been published in scientific journal and per- periodicals because they, they, they were given um, $10 million from tobacco companies to do these reports. The report then listed the research projects and described their purposes. Here are just a few of them. Nicotine receptors in identified cells of the snail brain. Humans don't have a snail brain. The effect of nicotine on behavior of mice, which we use mice to in many lab studies, which I would promote that. Angina pectoris and bronchitis in relation to smoking, a study in American and Swedish twin roosters. Post-maturity syndrome in pregnant rat after nicotine absorption during pregnancy. I agree with that one. Interactions of nicotine, caffeine, and alcohol and squirrel monkeys. I agree with that one too because we um, I'm, there's probably a lot of information in that squirrel monkey one that is probably actually really relevant today with caffeine, alcohol, and um, nicotine use. The effect of smoking in placental oxygen transfer and Greved use, which is the company that did the research urinary excretion tissue distribution and destruction of nicotine in monkey and dog body build and mortality in 105,000 world to american veterans as well upon going through the back reports of the ama's committee for research on tobacco and health one of the one is able to count but five research subject projects that are primarily concerned with cancer and I find that to be completely true there. It was like, wow, why, why would you study some of that stuff? It don't make any sense. In the 1970s, there was little chance that literal would be given a chance to be tested except by its opponents. Every time proponents attempted to obtain permission to do so, they were turned down cold. On April 6, 1970, for example, the McNaught Foundation, under the sponsorship of Andrew McNaught, 
submitted an application to the FDA for permission to engage in what is called the investigation of new drug phase one studies. Permission was granted on April 27th, then in the words of one reporter, all hell broke loose. The FDA apparently received a phone call from an irate, politically influential figure who passed the word, stop the testing now. (laughs) Excuse me. The next day, April 28th, the FDA sent another letter to the foundation advising that upon reviewing the records, certain deficiencies had been found in IND application and demanding extensive additional data within 10 days. Nevertheless, hoping that the FDA would reinitiate the IND approval upon receipt of the additional data, McNaught proceeded with the paperwork, and on May 15th, just nine days after the receipt of the FDA's initial order, sent off to Washington everything that had been requested. By now, however, the FDA was firm. Literal was not to be tested. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast, and I hope you run out there and grab uh, J. Edward Griffin's book, World Without Cancer. I hope you check out that movie by, you know, or about Michael David Weiss, uh, Puncture. That was a great read. And um, remember, not every bad person in the whole world, remember, they there was a good side to them somewhere. And you got to dig deep, you know, and I'm sorry that we get sick and I'm sorry that we all have defective cells inside of us and that nobody's promised tomorrow. And that's why we got to live in the present, live into today and be coherent in our decisions and realize that your government, your government now is not here to protect you. We're done with that. You know, they may say that they may push safety folks, but it's not about safety. It's about the safety of protecting corporations against you stealing their money and lawsuits and malpractices and getting rich and them forever making everybody around them in this country poor and off our backs. And I know that we are now at the end of something that usually like, it's like, like every 80 years something goes on, you know. It was 80 years all the way up until, you know, it was, we, we had the Revolutionary War, boom, 80 years later, the Civil War, boom, 80 years later, another war. And that's the way it works because, you know, after World War II, the United States became the, one of the most powerful entities out there, and they are, which things are about to change. There's a shakeup in the whole world, and everybody needs to be ready for it. And it's going to happen by 2028. You know, it's, it's, it's inevitable, and it's unfortunate, but these things happen in life. And Each one of us are going through something that the other one don't know about. So, you know, be patient, be kind, be understanding. And if you know somebody that has cancer and that is going through something that you have no idea about, you know, try to find empathy and compassion. You know, you know, it's uh, forget about the apathy. Focus on the empathy. Apathy is not what you want. You want empathy. And cancer patients need to find ways that they could, you know, maybe have hope that they could be cured, you know, because it's an abnormal cell. There's got to be something we can do for these people. It's so sad to see, you know, a a five-year-old with leukemia or, you know, I hate that stuff. And I know you do too. Or to see our mamas and dads, you know, pass away of simple cancers that could be prevented had they had an alternative. Thank you guys for listening. I love you. And thank you for sharing me. And thank you for taking part in my polls when I make them. I do appreciate it. I know I'm not the best, but I'm trying. Give me some ideas. Email me. Let me know what you would like to hear 
or would like to, me to do some research on and get out there because I'm all about us healing ourselves and that the body has, if we focused and we round ourselves and we stop putting all these nasty chemicals into our bodies and we get back to healthy living, that we can actually become everything we want to be and be anything we need to be and that, you know, there is nothing to stop us but ourselves. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing me. Thank you for following me. This is the Only You Podcast.